Matthew 21. So a few weeks ago, um, after church, I drove with my family up to Portland and did a four o'clock wedding. It's really tight timing. We hit traffic, and so I'm, I'm looking at Apple, the, the map app, and it's like arrival time, 3.15, arrival time, 3.18, arrival time, 3.23, arrival time, 3.30, arrival time. It just keeps going up. I'm going, oh my goodness, are we going to be late? Uh, so we made it there on time, and I, we actually got there about 20 minutes early. And I knew the bride's family pretty well. Um, she had left, gone to Texas, met this young man. His name is Will. Um, and we did some premarital counseling over the phone, but I didn't really get to know him. I knew he had graduated from the Air Force Academy in Colorado, top honor, honors, um, is an Air Force pilot now. So I kind of figured, yeah, this guy's probably a pretty good dude. Um, she's a physician's assistant, so I'm like power couple. So I uh, go up to this just beautiful golf course, and we get to the golf course, and like they didn't tell anybody, they just told me, they're like, hey, um, don't step out onto the greens anywhere. I said, why not? Because I was about to do it. They're like, because we get a $1,500 fine for every person that steps out there. I'm like, you should have like a big sign that says that. <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, and we're kind of waiting for people to get ready, you know how weddings are. And I'm standing there, and I meet the dad, and the dad is in like full dress, uh, uh, military stuff. And I noticed on his shoulders, he's got these stars. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. It turns out he's a retired Air Force general. First time I ever met a general. I'm like, this guy is good. So I'm talking to he and, and his wife, super sweet. And we're kind of waiting for everybody to come out. And then the mom said, hey, well, let me introduce you to my other son. And so I shake hands with this guy and we start talking. So I'm like, so your dad's a retired general. Your older brother just graduated from the Air Force Academy. He's a Air Force pilot. What are you? <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, I'm the black sheep. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, I'm not going that route. Uh, so I said, so what are you doing? I mean, so you're the black sheep. What are you doing? He goes, well, I just graduated from the University of Portland with a psychology degree, and I'm going back to get my PhD. I'm thinking, that's what a black sheep is in a general's family, I guess. You know, I'm like, that's success. The dad's like, oh, I can't believe it. He's such a failure. <laughs> so it's this interesting kind of dynamic where I'm learning and, and learning about this side of the family and, and kind of asking questions and probing and trying to figure out what, what are you guys about, right? And that's kind of the season we're in as a country, is it not? We have these two people that most likely one of them is going to lead our country for the next four years. And so there's all this kind of, well, what kind of person are they? What kind of family do they have, right? What, what kind of history do they have? What are they about? What are their backgrounds? Who are their friends? Debates, asking them questions, probing, right? And there's always some nut job that's like, that one's the Antichrist, <laughs> which is offensive to the Antichrist. It's like, I'm so much worse than them. I mean, do not compare me to that person. I am much worse than them. <laughs> so so we're, we're in a season like that as well. Well, here's where we're at with Jesus. He's now in this season, and, and, and we'll see that, that this is the probing question, getting to know him, debating every action, every word is parsed, and they're trying to figure out what is this guy all about. And the whole thing ends 
in this vicious political takedown that we call the cross. So that's where we're, we just entered that stage. It's a whole new dynamic in the book of Matthew. And it kicks off very differently. And we see in chapter 21, verse one, I call it the king comes. So here he comes. Verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth Phage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you've got the king coming. And if you've been with us since chapter 15, here's what you've seen. Jesus begins way up in this place called Tyre and Sidon. And he begins to move and he moves over to Caesarea Philippi, chapter 16. That's where the rock is in that confession upon this rock, I'll build my church. Then he comes down into Galilee and does some ministry into Galilee. And then he crosses over the Jordan River, goes into the Great Rift Valley, follows the Jordan River all the way down to Jericho, crosses over at Jericho, and then begins the 4,000 foot. It's in the lowest spot on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. And then he ascends up to Jerusalem, which is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. So it's about... Uh, it's a good climb, almost 4,000 feet of elevation. Climbs up, ends up kind of in this area that overlooks from the east the whole city of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. It's almost like, uh, like the Democrats or the Republicans, when they finally have their nomination, it's like the, the presidential candidate will do this like circuit, right? And then he'll end up or she'll end up in the city where they nominate him. It's almost like that. Jesus does this kind of giant circle around Israel and then zeroes in to Jerusalem. And his crowds that follow him are growing every place he goes. So by the time he's in Jericho, it says these great crowds are with him and they would have followed him from Jericho all the way up that long ascent into Jerusalem. And his timing is perfect. Because this begins the most important week in Israel. It's the feast of Passover. So it's just this perfect timing. And he enters through this one city and it's called, verse two, verse one, Beth Phaeage or Bet Phaeage. That word means Bet is always house. Bethlehem, you know, house of bread. Um, Bethlehem means, or excuse me, Beth Phaeage means this. 
the house of the early figs. That's really important to keep in your mind as we go through the story because it's going to come back. So it's the house of the early figs. So he enters into the house of the early figs and then he is going to get this system kind of set up and go get this donkey, go get her colt as well, her foal, bring them to me. And and when Jesus says this, it's like Matthew kind of whispers in our ear, like, by the way, this is prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. It's like he's filling us in on the details behind the scene. This is it. And then Jesus says, if you go there and you ask for them and anyone says, hey, what are you doing? You're to answer, the Lord needs them. Isn't that a bit strange? (laughs) Like if you come to my house with a buddy and one of you jumps in my F-250 truck and someone else jumps in my Volkswagen bus and I go to stop you and say, hey, God needs them. Guess what I'm gonna say? You keep driving that and you go meet him and ask him if you really needed him, (laughs) right? I mean, it's a little bit strange. Like, are you kidding? You're, you're taking my transportation, really? So, so what is happening here? I think Jesus is orchestrating all these events. So Bethphage is really close to this other city called Bethany. They're like twin cities. And Bethany was this massive center of Jesus's ministry. Mary and her brother Lazarus lived there. Jesus did a lot of ministry there. I think Jesus set this entire thing up. And here's why. Everything's changing. Up to this point, Jesus has said to people that realize who he is, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am. He would say to his own mom, hey, my time has not yet come. Well, right here, his time has come. So Jesus is now orchestrating events to say, I am the king. Will you accept me? So he is presenting himself as the king fulfilling prophetic messianic prophecies. I'm the king and I am here. And the crowds, they get it, don't they? They're saying Hosanna to the son of David. That is a messianic term. It's actually from Psalm 118. Jesus will quote from the same Psalm in in verse 42. It's them saying, the king's here. The king has arrived. And so they say it over and over, Hosanna to the king, he's here. And you see this division that happens. There's actually two groups of people. There's the crowd that is gathering and following Jesus as he makes this giant circuit around Israel. But then there's also the people in the city, verse 10. And the people in the city, it says they were stirred. That word in the Greek means, it's like what happens to you when you have a nightmare. It's not a happy kind of stirring. It's like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Who is this person What is happening right here? Oh no. So you really have two very different groups of people. You've got the city folk and you've got the country folk. Now, aren't they different? Look at every vote in our county, right? When we try to pass a levy for police, the city overwhelmingly passes it. The county overwhelmingly denies it, right? Two different groups of people. So the country folk that have gathered around Jesus They're all for him. They're laying down their robes. They're making a a impromptu red carpet. Come in, you're the king. The city folk are, what's going on? And they actually ask, who is this? And they reply, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. So you can already see there's a division. And Jesus, he rides in on a donkey. And I said on Sunday, I don't care who you are. 
you cannot look tough on a donkey. The, the bigger and stronger you are, the more ridiculous you will look on a little donkey. It's just that simple. So the, the Romans, they pay attention to this stuff. They have a fortress right there where Jesus would have entered. It's called the Antonia Fortress. I've been there. It's high up. They would have seen all this action and commotion. They would have got on their war horses, charged down there. And what they would have seen is this rabbi from Galilee trotting in on a donkey. And they would have been like, oh my goodness. Let's go back and take our naps, right? Are you kidding? This is not a disturbance. Who cares about this? So what's the deal? Why is Jesus, as king, presenting himself on a donkey? Here's why. In Israel, if you wanted to come in as king in peace, you would always ride in on a donkey. It's what Solomon did in the book of 1 Kings. I'm presenting myself not as a warrior, I'm presenting myself as a man of peace. I'm coming as the king, as the prince of peace. So Jesus is offering himself this kingdom, not of war, not of destruction, but a kingdom of peace. That's his first offer. We know they're gonna reject it. When Jesus Christ returns, what's he writing then? Revelation 19, a war horse. It's a very different entry because you will either receive Jesus as the prince of peace or he's gonna come as the conquering king. There is no other option. It's either I'll receive his peace into myself and enter into his kingdom or you'll be excluded from his kingdom and you'll get the conquering king. So Jesus here is coming to the city of Jerusalem and saying, I'm coming as your peace. I'm coming as your shalom. I'm coming as that. Will you receive me? And sadly, we know they don't. So Jesus comes in, presents himself. Undeniably, I'm the king. What are you going to do? And then look at the next thing he does. It's verse 12. I call this the king cleans his house. And Jesus entered the temple and drove, all, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did <laughs> and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. I love that answer. Yeah, I hear it. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus does two things in the temple. He, he purifies it and then he restores it. He restores it to what it actually is supposed to be. So Jesus comes in to the temple. Now, I, I've explained this before, I'll do it again. Here's what the temple was. The temple was to be this overlap of heaven and earth where God who resides in the heavens invades earth and there is this overlap in the temple 
And when a person comes there and made an offering, that offering created a little clean spot for them where they could enter into fellowship, they could enter into the presence of God. So it was this overlap, it was this really important space. So that's what the temple is supposed to be. Come here, meet, have fellowship with your heavenly father. Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, had decided about oh, a couple years before this, I'm gonna take all the business part of the temple that was outside, and I'm gonna move it inside. We're moving it right front and center. Now, why would he do that? He make a lot more money that way. It was business for him. It was how can I make more money? And so Jesus comes, cleanses this thing, and, and it details that he knocked over the seats of those who sold pigeons. Why is that pointed out? Pigeons were the offering of the poor people. Who gets hurt most by business practices that are unfair? Poor people, right? That's who get it. So God, if you read the law, God had provided this, this way that ensured no matter what amount of money you had, you could always make an offering. You could always come into his presence. It was a way of God saying, sin's costly. It's gonna cost you, but never so much that you cannot come into my presence. So if you're rich, you'd buy a bowl. If you're middle class, you'd buy a lamb. And if you're poor, just for a penny, you could buy a bird. So it's going to cost you, but it will never cost you so much that it's going to exclude you from my presence. So it was God's way of ensuring, hey, it's fairness, because I want poor, rich, all to be able to come into my presence. Well, what they had done by this movement of pigeons and all the offerings and exorbitant prices being paid for these things is they had made the poor people suffer the most. And that ticked off Jesus. And so he says, this has to Stop. It's not business. It's amazing how we make business out of Jesus. What's the biggest business in our country? Christmas, right? Black Friday, Brown Thursday, Yellow Wednesday. It's going to keep going, <laughs> right? Man, that's when people, that's when literally most businesses go from the red to the black that week. We still make business of Jesus. It's interesting. And so Jesus comes in here and says, no Wait, I'm clearing this thing and I'm gonna purify it of any obstacle put in people's paths so that they can come into my father's presence. I think as a church, you have to continually be asking, are we redoing what Caiaphas did? Are we putting some obstacles in the paths of people who wanna get to God? I think sometimes that we can get so business-like in the way that we do services or we want to make lots of announcements, we want to do all this, all this stuff, that, that we, what we end up doing is we almost like push Jesus out. He just gets to the margins. Well, I only have like five minutes to talk about Jesus because we've got all this other stuff to do. So part of my fight is always, I want it simple. I want to make sure that Jesus, at the end of the day, Jesus looks beautiful and, and everything else has to bow to Jesus. We cannot let anything, anything ever push Jesus or put obstacles in people's paths. I have to be careful about my preaching. Sometimes you can preach like um, messages that sound really good, but really they have pushed Jesus out. And it's become just morality. 
I've replaced Jesus with morality saying, if, you, if you're a good Christian, then Jesus is gonna like you more. And so I gotta be very careful and like really always, always be making sure that I'm not condemning people because Jesus does not condemn people. I did not come to condemn, but to save mankind. And so part of my job is always, it's, I always go back to Psalm 27, four, where, where David says, man, there's one thing I want. I wanna be in your temple, why? Because I wanna see the beauty of the Lord. When we leave a service, Jesus must be beautiful. And part of the problem I think that has happened in Christianity is we have this false idea of what happens when we sin. So we still go back to the temple system moment, almost, and I'll talk about that in a second. But almost we think like, if I sin, I'm no longer able to be in God's presence. Whenever I deal with somebody on that issue, I go to Genesis chapter three, the first sinner, right? Treason against the king of the universe. Essentially saying, God, we could care less about your system. We'll do what we want. We'll be our own gods. What does God do in that situation? He rushes to them, comes to them, right? Tells them, yeah, there's consequences to this thing. Bummer, right? Makes them some clothes, covers them with skin, just total mercy, and then he gives them hope. Listen, there's good news. There's the seed of the woman that's coming and that seed is gonna crush the serpent's head. He rushes to them. What happens to the prodigal son? Does the father say, oh, hold on. You stink. Get cleaned up. Dress properly. No, he rushes out and grabs a hold of his son, throws a party for him. We have to get the right view of God. It's very important that I'm continually presenting Jesus as beautiful. Because if not, we begin to make these obstacles just like they did to come into Jesus's presence. But Hebrews chapter 4, 16 says this, we can come boldly before his throne of grace and obtain help in our time of need, okay? That means we're not doing well. We need grace and we need help. It's beautiful. But lastly, I think this, I think Jesus still purifies temples. I think he's still in this business. That Jesus looks at you and me, 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We're the new temple. We're the place that God meets man, literally in us, no longer outside of us, no longer a place that we have to go. Now it's, I'm going to circumcise your heart, give you a brand new heart. I'm gonna write my will upon that heart. I'm gonna meet you right there. It's a whole different thing we're in now. So now we are the temple. I think Jesus still cleans up the temple. I'll give you the best example I have. I was in 2004, I'm in Zambia, in Lusaka. And I was looking at this ministry and, and looking at partnering with it. And this phenomenal ministry there, they, they, it's called For Hearts and Souls. And all they did was they took babies with AIDS. So you knew these babies, they're, they're only gonna make it a certain amount of time. Just a, a very, very pure kind of ministry. Uh, I, I, there was this one girl, they had found her in a trash can um, because that's just the hopelessness of that situation. They brought her in. She was like two years old. Man, I just fell in love with her. And just, hard, just, that, just a hard, hard, really good ministry. So we're trying to figure out, like, what can we do? And the, the guy, the, the pastor's name was Pastor Ed. I was actually staying at his house. Super fun. Just great African pastor, charismatic, loved Jesus, just exuberant, just joy, just always smiling. So he took us out to this place, and it was way out of town to buy maybe a farm and, and move these orphans from middle of Lusaka 
out into the, the farming areas. So we're, we're driving and we're probably 20 miles from anything. We're driving along and um, there's a bunch of white people in this van and he's, he's driving and th- this van, kind of this work van goes kind of pulling up beside us, starts to pass us. And I look over and this guy in the passenger seat is drinking a, like a 40 ouncer of beer. He's like, you know, and it's illegal to drink and drive there. So he's not supposed to, you know, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And so he's kind of passing it back and forth to the driver and they're drinking away. And, and then they pass me and, and then they get up and, and Pastor Edward looks over and he goes, Stephen, the guy was a deacon in his church. Those deacons, you gotta look out for them. The, the dude just spit beer all over that windshield. I mean, he's just like, what are the odds of this? 20 miles out in the middle of nowhere, I see my pastor and I'm drinking a beer. That is just so classic. God will purify you, man. You find it hard to sin, and that's because Jesus is purifying you. I'm not letting that. I'm coming in. I'm kicking this stuff out. I'm knocking over tables. I'm not going to let you go that way. I love you too much. That's what he says. We should be failures at sinning. That's what we should be. Beware of the time you get to Romans chapter one, where it says three times, and God gave them up. That is a very, very sad place to be. That is a constant pressing against God's spirit and saying, no, 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 no. And finally just God says, okay, then have it your way. And his whole goal is, hopefully this thing socks you in the mouth and you come back to me. But we never want to get to that point. We want to have soft hearts that are easily remodeled by our heavenly father. So he purifies, but then notice also, Jesus now gives us what was supposed to be taking place in that temple. Number one is, what does he say? Verse 13, prayer. In fact, if you go to Isaiah 56, it says, prayer for all nations. See, Israel missed their calling. Israel is to be this example. Read Ezekiel, it's brilliant. Israel is to be this example for every other nation. Here's what happens when you serve Yahweh. Here's the kind of life you can live. Here's the kind of blessings that come to you. Here's the kind of light you are. Here's the kind of purpose you have. You're to be this this nation that every other nation will look at and say, we want your God. Prayer for all nations, bigger than them. But they became internal and only looking upon their own thing and exclusive for all the Gentiles. In fact, they began to look down upon the Gentiles. A danger. Supposed to be, number one, prayer. Number two, look at verse 14. Jesus clears house and he does not take off. He sits down. My house. And it says the lame and the blind came to him and he healed them. Churches would be a place of healing. And then there's this praise going up. Hosanna to the son of David. It's to be, be, to be a place of praise. And then Jesus quotes the Bible, Psalm 118. It's supposed to be a place of the Bible not business meetings. Church, these temples, when we gather, there should be praise and prayer and healing in the Bible. Man, that's what church is to be about, not business. We should see people being healed physically, absolutely. Emotionally, spiritually, from bitterness, from unforgiveness, just being set free, just healed. That's what the church is to be about. God, help us to always be a place that makes Jesus beautiful. When we do that, I think here's what happens. Like, I like it when people say, hey, Matt, that was a good message today. Oh, hey, you know, pat, pat, okay, thank you. 
Here's what I love to hear. I love to hear 1 Corinthians 14, 25 of a truth, God is in this place. If there's one thing I wanna hear over and over, I was there and I felt God in the praise and in the prayer and in the Bible. And I felt God's presence. There's nothing better to be said. We're to be that temple, that overlap, that place where two or more are gathered that Jesus just shows up and does incredible things, touches hearts and heals, sits down with us, if you would, sings with us, teaches us. That's my biggest hope. First Corinthians 14, 25, of a truth, God's in this place. So he remodels and restores its proper position. And then he leaves, verse 17, and I personally believe um, he may have stayed with somebody, but I don't think he did. I think he went and camped out because in the morning he's hungry. And if he was staying at somebody's house, they would have surely, just the hospitality of that culture, of any culture, you're not gonna send Jesus out hungry. He's hungry as we'll see. So he goes and homeless, verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree. It's very little distance, by the way, from Bethany, the Mount of Olives to, it's like a short little walk. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what I have done, what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I call this the king's curse and it's bizarre, right? Jesus is hangry or something, hates on this fig tree, kills it, and then tells his disciples, you can have this superpower too, even more superpowers. Like you just read and you're like, what in the world? Now remember, Bethphage, what does that mean? the house of the early fig. This is the place that if you want to get early figs around Passover time, you would come to this area because they had early figs. So this tree was supposed to be fruitful. In fact, the, the fig would appear before the leaves would. So it has leaves. It's supposed to have fruit, but it does not have any fruit. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Right? Isaiah chapter five, the poem of the vineyard. You're supposed to have fruit. I looked for fruit. I looked for Sadaqah and Mizpah, righteousness and justice. I didn't find any. You've missed your calling, okay? This parable is not about a fig tree, or this, it's not a parable. This story is not about a fig tree. Um, If you go to Micah, this Old Testament book, it talks all about kind of this whole thing. So Micah 6 and 7, real important. Uh, In Micah chapter 6, God says this, what more can I do? I rescued you from Egypt. I brought you into a good land. I fed you. I I kept you safe. I've defeated all your enemies. What more can I do for you? It's the same idea. I built a vineyard for you. I put a fence around it. I built a watchtower. I built a wine press. I've done all this for you. What more can I do for you? And why have you treated me like this? And it says, I've showed you my righteousness, my sadaqah. And so then the people respond. It's like almost a court case. They say, well, what do you want from us? Do you want sacrifice? 
Do you want our firstborn? Do you want thousands of rams? Do you want our money? Do you want our family? What do you want from us? And then you have Micah 6, 8. Very classic text. What does God want? Anybody know that? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, right? The word justice there is mizpah. You've seen my sadaqah. I want your mizpah. You've seen my righteousness. The fruit from that should be you guys begin to live lives of justice, but instead you haven't. So you get to Micah 7, 1, it says this. I looked for early figs and I couldn't find any. And so you go on in chapter seven, it says this, the curse is coming. The Deuteronomy 28 curse is now coming on you. This isn't a story about a fig tree. This is a story about Israel. There's been no fruit. You did not fulfill your role. What I asked of you, I wanted Sadaqah and Mizpah from you. I did everything possible to give it to you. You refused it. And so because you're fruitless, bad things are coming. And then he says to his disciples, like verses 21 and 22 are always a head scratcher to me. Okay, you can curse the fig tree and you can say to this mountain, what mountain do you think Jesus is talking about right there? I think it's the Temple Mount. He's just walked down the Mount of Olives out of Bethphage. He would be looking at going up to the Mount of Olives. There's this really deep valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. This really deep valley. He's coming up and he's looking up at the Mount of Olives or at the, Mount, the Temple Mount. And he's saying, you could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. So here's my take on it. Both the fruitless fig tree and the mountain represent the mosaic system. The system that existed from Exodus chapter 20 all the way to Jesus. And I believe it is temporary, Galatians chapter three. We've talked about that. Um, is, uh, you can look at even Exodus 19 where I think God had a different plan and they kind of refuse. That's a whole big story. But the, the mosaic system, even Galatians three says, listen, it was until the promised seed came. It's this temporary system and it's being cursed. It, it, it's, it's done with, it's gonna be cast in the seed. You don't need it anymore. And what I want from you, really is verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you receive if you have faith. That's always what God has wanted. From Abraham to you and me, what God wants is a people of faith that trust that he is good and generous. So this old system, you guys now have this new power to say, that system's gone. We're not doing it anymore. It's not rules, it's not regulations. It's relationship in prayer and walking with God in faith. That's what it's about now. And so the fig tree, that, that system, along with the temple system, it's going away. And literally, in about 40 years, that's what would happen. The Romans would come and completely destroy the temple mount. So that's my thing. That's what I believe there. It was supposed to be a place of prayer, of healing, of praise, of a way to enter into Yahweh's presence, but instead it had become a den of robbers and injustice. And so that's why when Jesus quotes in verse 42 of this text, where he says, there's something new coming. The, the rejected stone is gonna be the cornerstone of a new building and it's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our sight. What Jesus is saying is this old system is going away and the rejected stone is now gonna create a whole new family built on a whole new precept, built on me as the chief stone, built on my work because it's the Lord's work and it's gonna be marvelous and beautiful. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. Right? So that's my take on it. Right after that, Jesus has said this. He enters the temple 
And now he gets challenged. I call this the king is challenged. Verse 23. And when he entered the temple, you got these people waiting for him. (laughs) The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them. I will ask you one question. (laughs) They should know by now, this is really dangerous. (laughs) And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they were discussing it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? And if we say from man, We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love that. Jesus goes right back to ground zero. Just no fear. I'm going right back to the temple. I cleared that thing out. I know it's like a, I just kicked a hornet's nest. I'm going right back in there. And they say this. By what authority do you do this? Notice they don't ask him, why did you do this? They just ask him, what, what authority do you do this? Why'd they say, what authority and not why? They all knew it was wrong. They all knew what they were doing there, selling stuff in the very temple courts of God. That's absolutely wrong. We know it's wrong, but no one's doing anything about it. It amazes me how many wrong practices happen and nobody does anything about it. You know, we shouldn't really be watching this stuff in my house, but... (sighs) You know, these practices probably shouldn't take place at work, but... (sighs) You know, I don't really like this stuff in our city, but... (sighs) It's amazing how many wrong things happen, and nobody does anything about it. It takes a Jesus kind of character to actually do something about it. By what authority are you doing this? Why is that in human nature? Why is it that we just kind of allow things to happen that we really know in our hearts we shouldn't be doing this and yet we still do them? Maybe it's that old story about if you put a frog in hot water, it'll jump right out. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water and slowly heat it up, it'll boil to death. Have you ever heard that? Is that true? Okay, Victor Hutchinson, MIT, did a study on frogs. And he did that study right there. And he found this. If you put a frog in lukewarm water and start to heat it up, when it gets hot, the frog jumps out. He's not stupid. He's like, this is hot. I'm out of here. We might be the stupid people because we're like, yeah, I do that. I do that exact thing. So maybe we're stupider than a frog. I don't know. <laughs> a better example, maybe, a truer one. It's this commercial I saw when I was 17 years old. I've never forgot it. It actually shaped my life a little bit. And it was this commercial of this guy running and it just kind of, it's on his face and he's sweating, he's running. And there's a voiceover of a child. And the child is saying, when I grow up, I want to be an Olympic marathoner. So you kind of get the impression like this guy's running the Olympics. How cool. He's in Rio. Awesome. But then it starts to pan back and you see he's just kind of drenched in sweat. And he's a little disheveled looking. And it keeps panning back and you see this arm with his blue sleeve reach out and grab this dude and just crush him to the ground. And then the final scene is him being handcuffed. And then the big heavy voice comes on. No child dreams of growing up to be a drug addict. Say no to drugs. What happened to that guy? What happened to the child that says, I want to be an Olympic marathoner? 
How do you end up? A drug addict. Slow slide. It's always a slow slide. It was, hey, hey, you know what? It's inconvenient for them to, to buy the stuff over there. Let's just move it a little closer to the temple. Hey, you know, it's still kind of inconvenient. Let's move right to the steps. Hey, you know, it's outside the temple right now. What's the big deal? Let's just move it inside the temple. Slow slide. That's the way Satan works. He never comes to you and like, you know what, bro? Do black tar heroin. It's always a slow slide. It's subtle compromises. And then pretty soon it just kind of lulls you into this slumbering sleep and you end up with bad stuff in the temple. John Bergen, I don't know if you remember him, just an old saint, led our uh, 55 Alive for a while. Dick Bowden's doing it now, doing a great job. But John Bergen, I did his wedding at 89 years of age. And everybody at the wedding was like 89. I felt like Doogie Howser. I'm like, what am I doing here? I mean, this is weird. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it was awesome though. Um, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, Matt, every day I pray, and he was a saint, every day I pray, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. Am I sliding somewhere? Have I compromised somewhere? Am I heading in a direction that's gonna end up in a situation that's devastating? Lord, search my heart and see if there be any wicked way and lead me on the path everlasting. I think that is wisdom, wisdom. So they come at Jesus. By what authority do you do this? Jesus asks him this brilliant question. What about John the Baptist, heaven or man? They get in the huddle, right? It reminds me of like a uh, replay, football. Like, well, let's get together. Not enough evidence. We don't know, right? They punt. Instead of giving the real answer, they punt. They, they're afraid of the people, and so they lie. They knew, right? They lie. They flat out lie. These guys are the perfect example of fruitless people. They're the example. They're just showing the rest, this entire chapter. Here's the reason why this thing has to end. You're sinful. You're plotting my death right now. You're trying to gain evidence to kill me. You ask this question not to get an honest answer. You ask this question to begin to make evidence so that you could kill me. You're not Sadaka. You're not Mizpah. You're the opposite of it. This whole system has to come down. So immediately Jesus looks at him and he gives him this parable. Verse 23. Excuse me. Verse 28. Looked like a three for a second. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Vineyards are real important. Read the Old Testament. They're everywhere. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, yes, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, right? The way of Sadakah, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, the Sadakah, 
the rightness of him. You did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I call this the king's conundrum, or you could say his riddle. So he tells this very simple story. Two sons. You ever have a son disobey you? <laughs> Myron, my three-year-old, he's amazing. Like, he's just, so, he is not afraid of the opinions of mom and dad. He's gonna be a leader, no doubt about it. But I'll tell some of my kids like, hey, clean up your room. Okay, dad. <laughs> and then I'll find them a half an hour later playing with Legos. Like, did you clean your room? Oh, I forgot. Yeah, okay. So this is a very common story. Like, okay, we all get that. Yeah, that's happened before. So the questions now become, who are the two sons? The first son, the one that says no, and then changes his mind and does it, that son is the prostitutes and tax collectors. The second son that says, yeah, 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 I'll do it, and then does not do it, the second son is the high priest and the elders. Now, what's their difference? Well, there's this word, and Jesus uses it twice. And it's translated in my Bible, and he answered, I will not, but after he changed his mind, and then down at the end of verse 32, and even when you saw it, second son, you did not afterward change your mind. It's the word that normally is translated. Anyone have any other translations? What? Repented. Relent, relent. It, normally we translate it repentance. It's the word that we would use, repentance. So he repented, changed his mind, repented, and did it, and you guys would not repent. You would not change your mind. That's the difference. So what he's saying is this, high priests and elders, you say, yeah. You look to look. You act respectful. Outwardly, you say, yes, and, and all right, and I'm gonna do it. But inwardly, you're unjust, you're unrighteous, you're unfruitful, you're liars, you're fear-driven. And when I press you on these things, you refuse to change. You will not change. And so your past, yes, and all that you're trusting in your past is not gonna help you. But then he says to the prostitutes and tax collectors, you began by saying, no, screw you, God. I'm not doing that. I'm gonna live my life. I'm gonna party, I'm gonna go crazy. But then you are confronted with something, sadaka. You're confronted with something, with Yahweh, and then you repented getting a little too excited. You repented. And when you repented, you changed your mind and now your past is not going to anchor you. You get, Jesus says, into the kingdom of God before them. Your past will not hold you back. This is brilliant. This is unheard of. This is a society built upon past, built upon DNA, built upon history. And Jesus just throws it all out the door. It doesn't matter prostitutes and tax collectors who repent are getting in first. Their past will not keep them out, will not prevent them from my kingdom. Now, they should have known this because Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18 and in Ezekiel 32, you can read them. Both of those chapters say the same thing. I don't care if you lived a life of righteousness. If today you're wicked, you're wicked in my sight. I don't care if you live a life of lasciviousness and evilness. If today you're righteous, you're righteous in my sight. It's like just, a, they're brilliant chapters. So Jesus is, if you would, bring that up and saying, listen, 
You guys refuse to repent. And because you refuse to repent, even when you're confronted with the truth and said you're afraid and you're lying and I press and press on you and you know the truth, you know righteousness, and you say, no, you're out. You're out. But the tax collector and the prostitutes, the ones you despise and hate because they repent, they're in first. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Your past is no anchor for you. There's no glass ceiling in God's kingdom anymore. He shattered it with the cross. And we don't have to be worried about our past anymore. Romans 8, 1 just says, there is now therefore no condemnation, period. Your past has been cut and cleansed under the cross and you're in the kingdom. This is the gospel. So we're gonna take communion and we're gonna take a minute and just really think about that. Really think about, like, really? Really. Corey Ten Boone is the one that, that said this, and I think she said it right. She said, God puts your sins in the depths of the sea and posts a sign, no fishing. There's no past, man. It's, what are you doing today? That's what matters to God. What are you doing today? You could be the son that for years said, no, 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 no. If today you're saying, I'm changing my mind. I want to live righteous. I want to have Mizpah. Then God says, welcome to my kingdom. I mean, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. So we'll hand out communion and then we'll take it together.